What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Maybe someday there will be no need to take sexy back because the sexual self will begin as and remain an integrated part of who we are. I love this quote from Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want by Dr. Alexandra H. Solomon, an expert whose work I have admired for some time. I recently had the chance to sit down with her live at Diesel Bookstore in Los Angeles to talk about her mission to help women reclaim their inherent sexiness, the role men who care about women can play in this process, and more. Before I share our conversation, an important reminder about the brand new Beducated All Access program. For an introductory price of just $19 a month, you can access all of their courses, sexpert email support, monthly Q&A calls, and more. They're also offering a free 14-day trial. If you'd rather take one course for now, you can still save $20 on the female orgasm course for anyone with a vulva by using the code GIRLBONER, no space, at checkout. Whether you want to learn more about squirting or anal sex, sex positions, bondage, orgasms, or all of the above, this program is for you. Head to beducated.com forward slash all dash access, or just click the link down in the show notes to learn more. On to my chat with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Alexandra is passionate about helping people show up for their relationships with compassion, integrity, and awareness. She's on faculty at Northwestern University, a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, and the author of two books, Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, and Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. She maintains a psychotherapy practice for individuals and couples, teaches and trains marriage and family therapist graduate students, and teaches the internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. A sought-after speaker, she's frequently asked to talk about love, sex, and marriage with media outlets like the Today Show, O Magazine, the New York Times, Vogue, and Scientific American. And I am so grateful to share her wisdom with you all today. All right. Thank you all for coming. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining us to hear Dr. Alexandra Solomon discuss her book, Taking Sexy Back how to own your sexuality and create the relationships you want with fellow author and host of the Girl Boner podcast, August McLaughlin. Thank you all so much. Thank you for being here. Your book is amazing. Congratulations on taking sexy back. Thank you. <laughs> it's back. I know what a labor of love a, a book is. Yes. Would we could we start with talking about what that means? Taking sexy back. Like who took it? Right. Yes. That's right. So we think of the word sexy as an adjective, right? And I think that um, each woman and probably each man as well has a particular kind of relationship to that word. And I my in my experience as a woman, as a therapist, as a faculty member, it is. A 
a fraught, loaded word and one that women often feel like they need to pose as a question, like, do you find me sexy? And what are the conditions in which I get to be sexy? And who determines what sexy is? And so it's oftentimes something that is in response to the gaze of another. And so what we're doing in this book is we make sexy from an adjective into a noun. And so this book ends up really being couples therapy between the reader and her sexy you know, capital Y, your capital S sexy. And so it really is a journey into who, what is this part of you? And does it, did it ever feel like it belonged to you? And what might it be like if, if we located the sexual self, the erotic self inside of us, like what new possibilities open up then? You talk about the messaging we receive from all sorts of different influences, including sex education, which is pretty lacking still in our culture. I wonder if you could share a memory from your own life and journey, something that you learned early on that maybe disrupted some of those ideas a little bit for you of, of, of what an authentic sexuality would be. Right. I, my memories of sex education were that it was very much focused on biology, on reproduction, and then there wasn't really anything uh, about a relational quality. And for, for most of us, it is that way. I, I had a student say to me last year after um, a lecture I gave, he said, I've never heard sex talked about without shame, without um, disease, right, paired with it. We, we're so, and certainly those public health aspects are vital, but, um, but it's not everything. And so my sex education really came from on Sunday evenings. I'm a, an 80s girl. So on Sunday evenings, I would take my Walkman and I would hide. I would put my head under the covers of my comforter and turn on um, Dr. Ruth. And that was when she was in her heyday. <laughs> Shout <laughs> out to it's, Dr. Ruth. That's She's amazing. Right. Yeah. My gosh, what a revolutionary, right? Yeah. And I would, and, and it was like, a, it was my dirty little secret, right? Nobody in my family knew I was listening. And it and so it became this sort of split inside of me that I was, for all intents and purposes, you know, a very good student, a very good daughter. You know, you show me a rule, I follow the rule. And it was like, this was this little enclave where I would just be fascinated by the callers and the questions and the conversations. Uh, can we talk about Dr. Ruth for a moment? Yes. Because I find it so fascinating that when we think about sex and sexuality, so often we think about society's ideas of what sexy means when we're talking about women and femmes. And Dr. Ruth broke those in so many different ways, in really awesome ways. She's not someone that you would necessarily expect mm -hmm. to be talking about sexiness, right? right? Although I think she's very sexy. Mm -hmm. um, but I've heard people say it was like my grandmother talking to me about sex. Right. What, wh what did you feel about her and also kind of the perceptions that we have as a culture about an aging woman being sexy? That's right. That's right. Well, it's a beautiful, it's another way that she subverts those paradigms, right? And yeah. even in just in her so, you know, she's just so she's just a lot in a little package. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just I remember just feeling like she was so wise that she was just this very wise teacher, mm -hmm. um, and that it was I was really grateful to have you know have that be part of my world. But yeah. also something I didn't really feel. I guess I could talk to my girlfriends about it. My girlfriends and I we knew which parent had which magazines hiding under which beds, and we would you know kind of steal a glance into a Joy of Sex or a mm -hmm. Kama Sutra book that we found somewhere but it was it was something that really didn't feel like it was woven into the rest of my life really yeah and at what point did you decide that you wanted to pursue work in this field when did it become such a, a passion professionally for you 
Right. So it's interesting because as, I mean, I've been a couples therapist for, you know, 20 years now, and I've been teaching training graduate students and then teaching undergraduate students. But there's, there's a way in which my field is also split. We have couples therapists over here and then we have sex therapists over there. And so it's another way in which there's like those people over there and then these people over here. And because I have been very identified as a these people, right, a couples therapist. And my, I mean, I had no training in human sexuality, which is quite bizarre when you think about it because that's what I'm sitting with, right? Our, our marriages, relationships, like these intimate little systems. But what I was trained to do is just think like help the couple communicate more effectively. And if they're talking well, then the sex will follow. You don't ever have to look at the sex directly. And so there's a way in which that kind of reinforced this the taboo nature of conversations about sex. And so it wasn't until relatively recently in my career that I was like, no more, like no more feeling like I can't authorize myself to really deepen into these conversations. And, um, and I think, I think also just the, like the nature of all like podcasts like yours and the research is finally catching up, right? The research on female sexuality is catching up. So there's ways in which it's taken all of us a long time to be like, we have to just normalize this. Yes. Yes. And thank you for, for doing that. It's so huge. I think, yes, please. Yes, absolutely. It's so commendable and so needed. Um, I know you're affecting so many people in such positive ways. I would love to talk about a few questions that we've received. One you received um, from one of your uh, fans or followers, and we have a couple that were submitted to the show, uh, very related to the contents of your book. Uh, Let's see. So one here... Let's talk about the one that you received. Mm -hmm. You received one about a woman who had her implants removed. And you said that now she feels 100% healthier, but her husband has asked her to wear a padded bra when they make love. Mm -hmm. What, What was your first impression when you heard that? Yeah, this what I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things that we do in this work is we have people, I mean, she and I will never probably meet face to face, right? But she felt safe enough to ask this important question. And um, I think as a therapist, I tried to walk a careful line of, of, of speaking from a place of just kind of big picture rather than speaking to her experience. So I guess the first thing I thought is that there are two entire stories that go into this moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't know all of the nuances of who each of these people are. Um, and I don't know what her story was of when she first decided to get implants, right? What was the story behind that? And she, um, I talk a lot about decisions that we make being guided by one of two things, being guided by love or being guided by fear, right? Being decisions we make that are guided by love are just sort of like trusting the bounty, trusting plenty, um, feeling from a place of deep authenticity versus fear being a place of like should, and I don't, I don't know. So if it was sort of a should that she felt like her, you know, the culture told her eight ways to Sunday about how breasts should look, right? And so was there a piece of her that felt like she needed to do this in order to meet some standard? Yeah. And then at some point she decided, I mean, I think it sounds like she was ill. The, bre- the implants had made her ill, right? Mm-hmm. So she has them removed yeah. and she's feeling wonderful. She's feeling well. She's feeling healthy. And now her partner is struggling. Well, her partner has an entire history of his own conditioning around his sexuality. And so when he says, I want you to wear a padded bra, I don't know if he can make the bridge to how unintentionally hurtful that might be, right? If we're giving him the benefit of the doubt, he's coming from a place of his own 
whatever yeah. that he's not trying to the the intent probably isn't to make her feel bad but what's happening is the impact is she feels badly she feels ashamed and embarrassed yeah. but i was wondering also when i think about especially like heterosexuality yeah. the sexual narrative i'm so aware we're sitting in a public courtyard this <laughs> the sexual narrative yeah. of heterosexual sex is incredibly erection focused yeah. right the entire storyline hinges on what's happening with his erection so i wonder if when he says please wear a padded bra if he's afraid that he doesn't trust that his body that he can really ease into that he can have some time to kind of reset readjust his sexual energy around this shift in her body and so maybe there's a way in which he's trying to spare both of them what he feels like would be a failure if anything changes around his erection in this new sexual chapter. Mm. But instead of saying, babe, here's my worry. Like, I don't know. I will. I love you. I love us. I love the love we make. I, it just may be a little while until I understand how to work with this new, this new, you know, the way that your body now feels. If he could say that, then maybe she could be like, okay, wonderful. Like we don't, you know, maybe it would feel really liberating to both of them. But it sounds, I wonder if he's trying to prevent in his mind, prevent a perceived problem. That's a really good point because, you know, when I first hear the question, it's easy to feel a little bit, you know, I feel protective yes. of, of this woman and to know more about this, this scenario would be so helpful, of course, because there's also, a, there's a chance that this person is maybe being controlling, right? Absolutely. Um, and if that's the case, that's a very different thing, but most people are not. Mm-hmm. And, and so... It also brings up the issue of having difficult conversations, which I hear from so many people that that's the hardest thing to do. And, and somehow that it's easier to say something like, I need you to wear a padded bra, than to peel back some of those layers and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and really talk about those things. Uh, and especially in this performance-based culture. Yes. Like you said. So what would be like a first step for a couple in that situation? Let's give them both the benefit of the doubt okay. and say they're both really good-hearted people who want the best <laughs> for this relationship. What what would, what would should they do next? Yeah. So, okay. So if we're going, because you're right, it really might be a sort of a controlling narrative. And, and, and if we're going in this um, benefit of the doubt, he also has an entire lifetime of being Condition to breasts should look like this, right? Right, and and very few of us right. have the bodies and the physiques that are yeah. shown to us in media, in yeah. erotic material. And in, it's not like this genetic thing. I've I've heard people say, oh, but it's hardwired into people. But we right. sexualize yeah. things as a culture, yeah, because mm-hmm. other cultures see bodies very differently than you know here. That's right. So because we all have these influences of this is what sex looks like. Mm-hmm we kind of can train our bodies to have arousal attached to certain stimulus or stimuli, right? Right. But we can also choose what turns us on in a, in a positive way that we want to be turned on. Right. And we can, and we can create new neuro neuronal pathways, right? Like if we, if it has been this, this erotic material turns me on, this um, behavior turns me on. It doesn't have to be the only thing we can Mm -hmm. always like expand that menu. Yeah. So, okay, so if we're thinking about what what would we want for them, I guess the first thing I would want is for her, I mean, I don't want to put the responsibility on her, but if she's going to kind of push back a bit or take an opportunity to expand a conversation, what I want her to say is when you make that request of me, the story I tell myself is, so those words, like the story I tell myself is, it's like, it's like, 
couples therapy 101, right? Mm -hmm. We so often don't do that. We assume what's in our partner's heads. And the longer we're together, the more we feel like we're, we really know everything that's inside their heads and we really don't. So the first thing I might want her to do is just say, when you, t when you make that request of me, the story I touch tell myself is that you think I'm ugly and that you um, are not drawn to me anymore. And the feelings I have about that are I feel really deeply insecure yeah. and somewhat in conflict because I, of course, want you to delight in my appearance and I want you to delight in our lovemaking. But there's this competing truth, this like both and, mm -hmm. that is I feel better than I ever have. I mm -hmm. feel healthier. Yeah. And so there's a part of me that just just won't it won't sort of succumb to a feeling of I regret that I had them removed or I've done something wrong or I've hurt us because my health is actually really supportive of both of us right we're not going to yeah. have a great marriage if I'm not well and I'm so much healthier yeah. so that those would be some of the things I might invite her to step into but mm. she has to be able to like push back against that shameful story that somehow she's ugly she's less worthy now she's hurt the relationship right she has to kind of push past that step out of that and hopefully invite her husband into a place of empathy. Yes. Yes. That's so important. What do you think? What would you, where would you want them I, to go? No, I, I agree. And I think also one of the things that occurred to me is this curiosity around how it was brought up, how, mm -hmm. how he asked this question, because there are so many ways, as you said, you can, if you're talking about yourself and your own feelings, it comes, it, it's felt very differently. We mm -hmm. receive it very differently than saying, you don't do this and you're not doing this and you don't look like this. And I wonder if it came across as a judgment or if it was a very tender, this is hard for me to say, but I can't function, you know, uh -huh. when, uh, when you're not wearing a padded bra. Uh, so I also, one of my thoughts was really about how he's communicating, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I feel like the empathetic listening for both of them would be so powerful. Um, with the goal being, what what would the goal there be? Is the goal to get to a place where she does not need to wear this padded bra, or is it? Right. You know, I know there's no like one right answer, but what what would be a healthy goal in that scenario? Maybe maybe one health one thing I would like, one goal that would be intimacy promoting would be for them if there are ways in which she's also grieving. Maybe there she's she may be grieving the loss of these breasts, and she may feel like this was a really hard decision. Mm -hmm. In some ways, right? Yeah. Um, and so if she, so they could grieve together. The lo I mean, in some ways, that's what a relationship is. We are constantly grieving the loss of the younger us, of the, how we looked, whatever, before children, before, you know, like there's all, there's sort of, that's what it is to love across time is to grieve, to attend sort of many, many, many losses of each other's like aspects of self. And then, and then celebrations of new parts of self that come forward. But I feel like they're missing that opportunity for them just to both stay together. Like those were lovely breasts. The perk was lovely. The whatever, <laughs> like so much gratitude. Thank you for who you, you know, for those breasts, for what they did for us for that time. Yeah. And they're gone. And, you know, goodbye, best wishes. And now let's get to know this new body. And, and to really honor, like, what does, like, what sensations are awakening for her? Like, what does, so he could really show up in that sexual space in service to her. Like, they could really kind of explore together this, this new body, this new aspect of body. But mm. he, can he step into that, right? Can he be curious? Can he serve? Yeah. Um, and can she allow herself to receive his curiosity? That's mm. what I would really love for them. Yeah, yeah. I'd also love 
to find out from the man where he got his ideas about breasts. Sure. And I think that that we can make a lot of guesses about that. I think we all receive messages about what sexy traditionally looks like. Um, But I think sometimes asking ourselves those questions, we might think that it's actually we want this person to do this particular thing or to wear this or to not wear that. But some introspection can really be helpful. Mm -hmm. I know that for me in my own journey, realizing some of the messaging I had absorbed and not realized that I had was just so empowering. You can get a little angry about it and and go, wait a minute, this was not something that I even chose. It just Mm -hmm. sort of happened to me. I, I, um, so I'm, I'm blessed to work at Northwestern where I have a graduate, you know, I have graduate and undergraduate students that are working with me. And so my writing team was, um, I was really blessed with this like incredible writing team. And we would bump up against these things like where sometimes it would be really strong in one of us and sometimes really strong in another, where we would just like move a ton of grief and anger Mm -hmm. through us as we were like working on these different aspects of this book of just, Mm -hmm. as you're, just as you're saying, like the stuff that we internalize that Mm -hmm. we did not ask for. Yes. Right, that can make us potentially even alter our own bodies mm-hmm. to somehow question like yeah. the perfection that is in the body exactly as it is that we have just I know in my own relationship with my body like I have been relating to it as a project my entire mm. life mm. right something that needs to be improved on or worked on or altered so I so resonate with like my first reaction to this this question right was sort of like no like you don't like you are beautiful and whole as you are and your sexuality is so much bigger mm-hmm. than any shape or measurement or you know anything so yeah. but that's that anger and that grief are I think really important because they push back against the the alternative is shame really the alternative is like either the culture is mm-hmm. fucked up or I'm fucked up you know and I would yeah. so much rather put it back on the culture and the messaging the stuff that we did not ask for can I say effed up in a public space <laughs> no alarms went off so I think we're okay no one's arrested yet yeah <laughs> <That's right. laughs> oh this ties so well what you just shared into another question let me see here Okay, so this is from one of my listeners, from someone who said we can call him Tim. Okay. Tim said, my partner and I got married last year and there is no honeymoon period sexually. I'm worried his fixation at the gym and bodybuilding are getting in the way. He claims he's doing it for health and confidence, but he's tired all the time and actually seems more self-conscious. Yesterday, he spent hours at the store picking out special foods and supplements when we were supposed to be spending time together. Mm-hmm. Instead of romance or sex, we had a big fight. Oh, so I feel so much for both of these individuals as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what struck you? as you were listening mm. to that? I think um, what struck me is this, I think there is this like false idea that once I get to X, whatever it is, once I bench this many pounds or once my waist is this many inches or once I weigh this many pounds, then my libido will come back or then I will be like, there is such, it's so easy to put the goal out there. And then what happens a hundred times out of a hundred is you get to that goal and then it's not enough, right? Because there's a new goal and it was never the right question in the first place. So something is blocking Tim's husband's ability to be present to just soften into connection and intimacy and like being versus doing but it's not we don't know what it is right we don't know what it is and the the hard thing about Tim's spot is that if his husband is really lost I mean this in in an eating disorder in an addiction in a compulsive behavior Mm -hmm. 
what Tim says is very likely to bounce right off his husband and just not have an impact. That's very sad. The addiction compulsion takes us out of intimate connection, right? It is really, it is, um, the intimacy is with the addictive pattern rather than with the other person. So I really feel for both of them because I suspect his husband may be really hurting. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we develop an addiction because we are trying to hide from a wound we haven't addressed, a trauma we haven't addressed. And so that becomes a way to kind of contain all emotion, create order from something that feels rather chaotic. And I don't know if it's something about the marriage, the new marriage that maybe has kind of pushed some of that old pain forward. And so the force of that old pain is now being met with the force of the compulsive exercise Mm. um but those would be all kinds of questions that i would be wanting to explore if i you know if we were sitting with them yeah yeah absolutely i found it really interesting that the focus of this question is about sex and there's this expectation because it's the new time in the marriage and all of that uh but when when there is some sort of whether it's disordered eating or compulsions it's never just about the sex, you know, it's mm. probably manifesting in all areas of both of their lives. Um, I feel like it's a whole other entity right. almost. And I found it interesting, the timing too, because I feel like if it was leading up to the wedding that this was happening, that's something that we see a lot. Mm-hmm. This idea of I'm going to slim down for my, you know, to look hot in my wedding photos. Right. And it can become a bit of an addiction because it's so socially acceptable, mm-hmm. which is so difficult because you get praise for this thing that you're doing that's becoming very, very painful and destructive, yeah. which I think ties in so well with, with the messaging in your book about what sexy even means and reclaiming it for ourselves. What do we do when it's rifling against the the messaging so much that all the forces around you are saying, no, but this is, this is how it works, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that can feel pretty frustrating, I think. Absolutely. Well, and what you're saying is so spot on around like we don't, what Tim's husband, the kind of feedback he's getting in his life. And we don't know what his whole story, right? He may have been, felt like he was overweight as a child or marginalized, you know, in his social community as a child growing up. So there may be a, an effort to kind of heal mm. that story of the chubby little boy or, you know, whatever it is. So it's, mm-hmm. it's things that potentially really predate the relationship. And, yeah. um, And I would want, I guess I would want Tim to be able to just sort of say to his husband, like, would you, if if you ever are available for some observations or a conversation about your relationship with the gym, Mm -hmm. I would really be interested in having that. So kind of like going in therapy, we call it like going meta, like sort of asking Mm -hmm. a question about talking, right? Sort of like one step up of like, would you, would you be open or available? Or I'm aware that I'm having some feelings about your relationship with the gym and I want to tread really carefully in honor. But if you are available for that conversation, I would love to talk with you about it. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, as someone who has gone through times when I had similar kinds of compulsions, questions that don't involve food or this, like a specific exercise or something, if someone's on the treadmill saying like, oh, I think that's getting a little overboard, that is definitely going to bounce right off, right? Mm-hmm. As you were saying, like a lot of those things kind of just don't sink in. And, and if anything, sort of you become very defensive. And uh, it's for me, what was really helpful was hearing I'm concerned because I, I really care about you and I love you and 
you don't seem as as happy as you were. You d- there's something I feel like there's a struggle going on, and I just want you to know that I'm here, and I'm not going to judge you. And can I? Do you want to talk about it? Could I help you find someone to talk yeah. about it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I think that that step of getting help is so challenging mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What do you do when when your partner you think that they need help or maybe you as a couple need professional help um, and they're resistant. Right. I do. I think that it can be, it can be really polarizing. And the more, the more Tim in this example, the more, the more Tim says things like you were at the gym for three hours or, you know, trying to kind of like call, call out behaviors in order to get his husband to see it. The more it's like that, then the more his husband is going to start to hide um, and start to deny and defend. So that sort of like accusation defensiveness, that becomes a cycle unto itself. And the more one of us holds one pole, the more the other is going to hold the other pole. So what you, the way you were languaging it around, I love you, here's what I notice, these are my concerns, like really locating it back the, the way we would do if we are needing to talk to any loved one about any behavior that's worrying us, sort of locating it in like, I love us, I love you, I'm concerned. I'm here um, if you ever want to talk to me about it. So that's what I would really want is a lot of like sort of transparency and to ground it in Tim's concerns. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful advice. The other thing um, that you highlighted a little bit is just the, um, the sort of like honeymoon notion. It's another notion that honey, that during that early, early months and early years post-marriage, we yeah. ought to be in a sexual whatever like a peak boon. and like it's all downhill from there right yeah so this is so just that like it's another sort of performance expectation that we should whenever those shoulds come in like those are really unsexy right shoulds do not invite us into a space of connection and the reality is that to become a husband mm-hmm. is to become a different version of self and it may take a little while to like settle into like okay so who are we now to each other and and we um and it's different and so all those narratives we had about watching our own parents marriages or the the, the messages we internalize about the nature of marriage itself can really be, um, can sit heavy with us and then can confront that idea that during the honeymoon period we should. So I would invite, I would also want them to just lift that off of their plates about mm. any expectation of who they should be sexually to each other now that they're married. Because pressure is not very arousing. <laughs> so, yeah, relaxation is the foundation of, of arousal. Mm-hmm. And so when we're feeling tense and we're feeling we have to be a certain way. Yep. Uh, I have a question that actually came to our resident sex therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming. And she answered via an audio clip, which I'm going to attempt to play. <laughs> this is uh, some high tech. Whenever I have to push buttons, it gets a little hard to dangerous your around here. Um, well, you know what? I'll read the question. Kay. And then I'm going to practice self-care by taking a pause to find the the, uh, clip here. Uh, (laughs) But here's the question. This question came from Amy, who wrote this. I'm 32 years old and really struggling with lack of desire, like almost none. It's really problematic because my husband feels rejected and he is so frustrated. Help. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com had to say. 
Amy, great question, and so fun to follow up on the conversation and interview with August and Alexandra. Um, so I sort of want to remind us, as Alexandra says, that you know we want to remember that all sexual problems are couples' problems. And I really like her equation of love, which is my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. So it's so important that you and your husband together recognize it doesn't feel good, honestly, to either be the gatekeeper as a low libido partner or the one with a higher libido who often may be feeling sort of rejected and not desired, right? And so it's so important that you both look beyond any sort of stories of the shame and blame to discover together new possibilities. And along that, I also think that it's so important that we're doing the self-exploration because low desire is almost always multi-determined by many, many factors. So first, certainly be speaking with your doctor because we want to rule out that it's not um, hormonal changes, depression, anxiety, side effect of medications. Um, you know, the biggest sex organs are brain. And so we, although often there's um, the cognitive component and all the inhibition, shame, blame, guilt, and all the inhibiting factors that can be impacting desire, we definitely want to rule out any of the organic or medical ones. And so I really want some of the core ingredients is always looking at, you know, what are the conditions for sex? And the foundation of arousal is relaxation. And the first condition is sort of rested and relaxed. And if you're like a lot of women, you know, at 32, um, again, I don't know if you have young children at home, but there's often a feeling of overwhelm and running on empty. Um, the antithesis, obviously, of the relaxation and the correct conditions. And so it's really, to me, starting with self-care. I always say self-care is not selfish um, because you really want to be in a place that you know, I sort of say it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, on the bottom of that is like shelter, stability, you know, the security, food, you know, what we need to live. And then higher, of course, is the self-actualization. But desire is really higher up on the scale. So we first have to make sure you're covering the basics and your foundations. And then from there, it's like, what are your turn-ons? I think women really have an opportunity to empower, them, empower themselves by exploring and discovering their turn-ons because as I like to say often we're turning ourselves off long before our partner even enters the room and so you know explore fantasies and I think a great one is reliving peak experiences really bring them back like mental rehearsal in your mind's eyes and, and embody the sensations of those peak experiences and you know again what were those sensations and what were the thoughts or the fantasies because we really want to relive them and learn from them and also to uh, think about, because I speak to this as well, the role of uh, scheduling sex. And I know that that never sounds sexy, but it's the idea that we uh, schedule a vacation and we don't enjoy that any less. And the important point is you can't command yourself what you're going to feel, say it's Saturday at 2 o'clock, maybe it's after a nap where you are rest and relaxed. You can't command what you're going to feel any more than you can command yourself to be sleepy. But we can, again, create those conditions. And so... You know, it's maybe it's after the nap, and what are some of the fun things you do that are connecting? Or maybe it's taking a yoga class together and sort of getting your heart rates up. Whatever works for you, but it's really in the moment, spontaneously deciding what you want to do because you've carved out the time that otherwise most busy couples don't have. And therefore, again, nothing has to happen, but certainly a lot of fun is more likely to happen, and you're creating those great conditions. So, 
Other than that, I would also recommend my own Rekindle Desire program. It's a 60-minute self-help audio program and workbook. So you sort of work through it at your own pace. And it definitely has experiential exercises in there, which I think are so give us keys and clues to really knowing what our turn-ons are. And also, of course, I'm going to recommend Alexandra's book, Taking Sexy Back. Um, I just love her book, and I'm recommending it to all my clients, as well as Emily Nagasaki's Come As You Are. And I just want to say, Amy, that when and if all those resources, you feel like you're still sort of stuck or challenged or, you know, finding it difficult to want to want, definitely reach out to an ASECT uh, certified sex therapist or counselor, because you absolutely don't want to be alone. You are not alone. And there are absolutely qualified professionals who can help you. So as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. She brought up so many wonderful points. I love what she says about scheduling sex, how it sounds so boring, but you plan a vacation and that just makes it more exciting because you have something to look forward to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? It's another one of those romanticized ideas that if we have to schedule it, it somehow isn't romantic and that desire ought to always be spontaneous. And that is not the lived experience of many, many women, especially women who are partnered in monogamous relationships. And now very recently, um, with research done with men, um, I can't think of the gal's name who just wrote a book about how much male sexual desire is also responsive. So responsive to the conditions and whether the conditions are um, connection first or it's being on the schedule. Like there's our, our sex drive is not this sort of like innate animalistic thing. It needs to be cult- cultivated and nurtured and nourished Only within us and between us. Only on TV. <laughs> right. Which it has to be because... It would take up the whole show, right? Um, (laughs) Right. But because we're lacking education and we don't learn much except for, as you mentioned, we learn still about diseases and we learn about abstinence typically. Uh, We we don't really learn about pleasure. We don't learn about um, a lot of the things that, that we end up having to lean on what's available, which for a lot of people is porn or just depictions they've seen in movies. Mm-hmm. What role uh, has media played, do you think, in the ways that we um, define sexy, especially for, I, I guess for everybody, um, but in, in the context of your book, the ways that women feel um, like sexy versus feeling sexually empowered and embraced, you know, sexualization versus, because one thing that I hear a lot is people will say to me, oh, you're, you're in the sexual empowerment space. That's really interesting because we don't need that. Like everything we see sexy, everything everywhere. Like women are too sexual is what I hear. (laughs) And I think that, you know, misses the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think about that in terms of this question. So she is feeling low drive, low desire, Mm -hmm. and her partner is feeling disappointed. And so there's a way in which then what happens if she's trying to kind of motivate her to, Mm -hmm. to please him, to connect with him, to not disappoint him, Mm -hmm. then it's, it's, there's a risk of sex becoming a performance, right? Or a duty. And those are, um, that's what we oftentimes see in the media is sex that is performative or Mm -hmm. so for somebody else's pleasure. So there's a way in which this dance that the two of them are doing in their own marriage in some ways mirrors all of patriarchy. You know, it's like, there's like so much lineage there about, Mm -hmm. 
um, the idea of women's duties to their husbands and women's bodies being for everybody else's pleasure but their own. Mm -hmm. So I just, I feel so much for them because it's like this dance is the two of their dance, but it's also the dance of an entire cultural system. And so, um, so I really want, I really want her husband to be able to kind of unpack his feel his story of I feel rejected um, because that I think is also an is, is part of this patriarchy is that a man's status is determined by right her interest in him female interest determines male worth I think is one of the other stories of patriarchy and so how else like how might he expand his repertoire of how he feels her love right how he feels that he's really shining in her eyes and if he had a wider repertoire for feeling loved by her for feeling cared for by her for feeling connected to her it might just lift off the pressure enough for her desire to be like oh Wait, here it comes. Like I could feel I feel my desire because it doesn't feel like you're just looking at me like, do you love me now? Am I good enough now? Have I done you know? So it might just be if he can kind of step back, widen out, that then she can have some space to step forward, which is what we're saying. Empowerment, right? For her to feel sexually empowered is for her to feel like, okay, I'm stepping forward. Right? There there's that like agency versus just all I can do is receive and like lift the gate for him to enter in yes and in very specific ways too I think I think that sometimes somebody thinks they have low desire because they don't desire the specific type of sex that they are being presented with um, or that they're used to or maybe it's become very scripted in the relationship and and I know that a lot of people love intercourse and plenty of people don't prefer that and so if that's your one option and it's the one thing you do, which I think has somewhat to do with something you cover so well in the book, which is even knowing our own anatomy. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to focus on um, bringing light to anatomy in, in taking sexy back? Because the research is staggering. So there was one study that surveyed college students and only half of college age women could accurately identify in like a diagram of the external female genitalia, only half of them could accurately identify the anatomy there and only a quarter of college age men could. So there's, so that is the underlying like base, like kind of poor foundation upon which any couple's, you know, desire challenges lie. And it's also that sort of, right, that script, as you're saying, that kind of holds up penetrative sex as the end-all, be-all, where if that was if that was off the table, which sometimes, you know, sex therapists sometimes will do, they will, like, prescribe, like, taking penetrative sex off the table and really, like, inviting a couple to explore all the other ways they can be, to, for straight couples, um, all the other ways that they can be together. And we don't know that. Like, that would be one question we would want to ask her, isn't it? It's like, what are, like, what are those what are the possibilities like what's on the menu and are there things that you wish were on the menu that aren't on the menu and why aren't they and there's even just like um even just that word foreplay right that word foreplay is the idea of like all these other things which tend to be the more orgasm promoting things for women and femmes um just that word is the idea like like those are all the things you do to get up to the main event which is really really like problematic when we deconstruct it isn't it like these things and so if that's really what their script is is just you do some stuff to get to this one thing and that one thing the penetrative sex isn't really her isn't really 
orgasm promoting, then she's not going to have that sort of like feedback loop where the motivation becomes intrinsic because she really wants to enter the space because she knows an orgasm is going to feel good and relaxing and help her sleep or whatever all the other benefits of it are, then that would be really where the work is for this couple. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the other really common blocks that you see uh, or hear about from, from readers that stand in the way of, of desire or authentic sexuality, just, you know, not feeling like you, we can really access that, that something more in the bedroom that so many people want. Mm-hmm. I think that, well, one that the research shows, especially heterosexual couples get into, is this whole question of faking orgasms. Which I'm sure it's something that you talk a lot about. I mean, it just it's such a um, this whole concept of a faked orgasm is such a rich space for deconstruction, right? And it's there's a way in which and and everybody, everybody um, of all sexualities has some amount of like frequency, like they in surveys um, will say that I sometimes do fake an orgasm, but the 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 part of the population that is most at risk of faking or most likely to fake are heterosexual women. So it just, again, comes back to that script and that idea of how much to be raised female in this culture is to learn an infinite number of ways of protecting male ego. You know, oh, yeah, I love that. (laughs) It was, I know, very, very quotable that was. Well, and the, pro- and the problem is that to protect the male ego is to say to the male ego, you are too fragile for truth. That's the really effed up part of it, right? It's what, it's what women are taught to do, but it's also the message that comes to men, which is you cannot have truth told to you because you are not strong enough for truth. So it just, it's, and I think there are some, you know, when you ask women why they're faking, say sometimes we'll say because, I, because I've had enough and I'd want the experience to end. Okay, so then the information the, the teaching moment there is what other exits might there be? And if it is that, that that her vocalizations really bring him to orgasm, then lovely. Let's have a shared contract that if I'm done, if it's not going to happen for me tonight, but I know that my sounds really bring you to that place, then I'm going to make those sounds. So it becomes a shared aspect of like, we're both going to engage in this fantasy together. It's like informed consent versus when she goes to that place of conveying that without them both knowing that's what's being conveyed, it just takes them both out of a space of intimacy and reinforces her own self-abandonment, reinforces the idea that he can't handle truth and creates space and distance between them. Yes, oh, that's so powerful. And I love the idea of making, instead of it being a fake orgasm, that it is a joint shared imaginative fantasy because I also think we shame people for faking orgasm sometimes. Yes. And I don't, I I feel protective of people when I hear that too, because I think there are reasons that they are faking the orgasms and for so many different reasons. And I actually heard from one person who said faking orgasms helped her get to a place where she could experience orgasm. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, like immersive acting or something. Uh (laughs) Like you just, uh, you really study it and you, Mm -hmm. you get all the juices flowing. Uh, but then also it's the lack of education. It's the lack of, um, knowing what works for your body or there's so many different factors, but all of the onus goes on to the person with a vulva typically or the, or the straight woman. Um, so I, I really appreciate that, mm-hmm. that it could be this collaborative, you know, cause enthusiasm is so wonderful. And so if it's the sounds, if it's the, we want to know that the other person is feeling good, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many ways to express that and it doesn't have to be this you know, this unspoken 
thing where somebody feels like they're being lied to. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And um, and I have heard from a number of people now about, about sort of like wanting to come forward in more truth. Like um, I've been faking for a while and now I want to come forward in, in that truth. And what I really want for when if somebody's going to come forward and sort of um, make that quote unquote confession, I want it to really be a shared grief, right? That it's not a betrayal. It's not a confession of a lie. Like it's not, it's so there doesn't need to be like that element to it. It can just be like, I love us and I want something else for us. Like I now have this piece of awareness that I didn't have before. I don't want to continue in this problematic pattern that takes me out of something more authentic with you. And I want us to sort of work on this together. Again, every sexual problem is a couple problem. So if that is a choice that someone's going to make to come forward and say, I have been faking more than I feel good about and I want us to find a new path forward, I want both partners to really grieve all of the social conditioning that set them up for that in the first place, rather than it feeling like, right, somehow somebody has to be, feel ashamed of themselves for having done this thing that the entire culture has set them up to do. Right, <laughs> right. When you think about it that way, I think it could feel like a relief because you're like, oh, oh this isn't God. all my fault, which is what we internalize so often. Right, and it opens yeah. a new possibility of like, okay, let's figure out what really does feel good for me. Like, let's work on this together. Yeah, mm. yeah. And again, even maybe taking orgasm off the table for that reason. And then if it happens, surprise. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard it called outer course, you know, where you <laughs> focus on everything else. Or I like to say foreplay as a lifestyle. Because to me, foreplay mm. is everything that feels good that's leading up to more good. <laughs> you know, more. it's not it's not everything before one particular activity. So I, I appreciate that you brought that up too. How has this work, especially with the work you did for this book, impacted your own sense of self? it's so it's like a little piece went in place for me last weekend I was at a book signing and a woman came up and she bought the book for her daughter who's 24 and she said my daughter is just really kind of um confused in her life she's not sure where she wants to live she's not sure the work she wants to do she's not sure about her relationship status she just is feeling kind of like so paralyzed and like not grounded and she's like I don't she's like so I, I just want to get her this book and it like it, this this thing came together for me which is about the 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 process or the journey of integrating healing weaving in the erotic self is grounding, right? It's centering. It's saying like, I'm not going to have bits of me scattered all over the place. I'm going to bring all of me. I'm going to have access to all of me. And the more I have access to all of me, the more I can be really clear on what's a yes and what's a no. What my boundary is, where it is, why it's there. I can speak my truth with love. And I think that's, I get like tearful saying it. I think that's what the book has been for me as well. It's just like, Um, me pushing back against all the ways in which I thought, well, I can't write a book like this because I'm a mom. I can't write a book like this because I'm in my 40s. I can't do a book like this because I'm a therapist, a prophet, like all these sorts of stories about like the why, why I can't authorize myself to speak in this voice, in this way, about these things that really, really matter to me. And in my own process with the book, I've collected all those parts of me, I think, and now I can show up more fully in spaces and feel more aligned about what I'm choosing and what I'm not choosing. And that's such a gift to my clients, to my students, to my husband, to my teenagers, you know, to me. So that's, um, <laughs> that's what this book is about. Yeah. It's so, so beautiful. And you're such a brilliant writer. I know that's n- not been your main thing historically. And it is 
your book is so well written. All of your writing is. Your Instagram is also very beautiful and poetic. Uh, I, I would love to, for you to share your, your handle for people. Um, but you write in such a, a beautiful way where you, you infuse your clinical expertise and a lot of research in this, this really accessible, comprehensive way where it also feels like we're hanging out with a friend. There's a real sense of trust and, and respect and, and friendship there. Mm-hmm. It's full of compassion and just such a readable, readable book on topics that can feel really heavy and dark. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for writing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do think that while it's primarily written for women, that it also can help people of all gender identities. You mm-hmm. even have a section specifically mm-hmm. for men and for allies. Why was that important to you? That was vital to me. It was really vital to write a chapter that was for, yes, as you're saying, men and male allies, because I, as a couples therapist, I know that when you make change in one part of a system, you shake the entire system. So I was just thinking about these women who are reading this book, who are shedding old stories, who are writing new stories for themselves and really wanting the men in their lives, whether they're their lovers, their partners, their very dear friends. I really wanted them to get it and to be able to like hold space and I think what's so I think the fact that we're having this conversation like in the midst of the Me Too movement where we really are like as we look with a lot of care at the intersection of sex and gender and power um, we open up space for new possibilities for how men can step forward and like hold that space for women to emerge in a different way and so that that part was really important for men I wanted to support men not responding with defensiveness or with a story that like I did this no man did this right this whole I mean patriarchy is not about bashing men it's about a system that hurts both that hurts all of us that hurts all of us that keeps all of us from really feeling fully entitled to access all the parts of the human experience. So that was why I wanted to um, have a chapter in there for men. And if you could summarize it in kind of a nutshell, what do you most hope that readers, specifically the, the main demographic you wrote for, the people you were thinking about when you were writing these words, um, what is the message you hope people take away? To um, when they bump up against shame in any aspect of their relationship with their sexual self, that they don't take that shame as truth, that they take that shame as uh, a reflection that they've inherited something that they did not ask for, and that they can meet that shame with a deep, deep well of like fierce self-compassion, and that from that place of self-compassion, that's what a new path opens up. And you don't have to know what that new path is, right? You don't have to know where you're going. You just have to arrive in that space of like, okay, there's shame here. I meet that shame with self-compassion and I stay present to that. And then I release the outcome. And then you just trust that the next thing comes forward. And that is definitely something people will get from this book. Having having read it, I hope everyone checks it out. It's called Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. I would say, including with yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that that may not be the reason people pick it up, but I really believe uh, people will take that from it. And people can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, Tell us where they can find you online and your fabulous Instagram, please. (laughs) I have been, I love Instagram. It's been a really fun space to play and be creative. So Instagram is just dr.alexandra.solomon. But my website is really the easiest kind of hub of information. And it's dralexandrasolomon.com. 
Thank you again for joining me and for everything you do. Thank you, August. That was really fun. Thank you all for being here. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, and check out those show notes to support the show, our guests, and our sponsors. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.